Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Mary Rose Cuskelly. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the stories that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Mary Rose Cuskelly is an award-winning writer of fiction and non-fiction, and today she's joining us with The Cane, which is her debut novel. 16-year-old Janet McClymont went missing weeks ago, and the town of Koala in North Queensland is on edge. Parents are jumping at shadows, ferrying kids to school lest they walk too close to the cane fields where Janet disappeared. Every inch of the region has been searched, and the worst is feared. Tensions run high as the townspeople watch each other with suspicion. Every man in town has been questioned, and while Janet could have been taken by an outsider, the townspeople cannot help but ask, what if the culprit is among them? Join me as we discover Mary Rose Cuskelly's The Cane. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Wow, sorry, that is the first time I think I've ever been on Zoom where audio has connected immediately and we're not looking at each other saying... <laughs> That's, yeah, sorry, that just actually kind of took me by surprise. What a, what a fun <laughs> intro. Sorry, you've got me going, oh, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me today. <laughs> You're very welcome. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Just been blown away by the cane. Oh, good. Um, now, I want to I just take a moment to introduce the cane. And I'm absolutely sorry, Mary I've done something to my screen. And <laughs> got it back. Okay, three, two, one, boom. I want to take a moment to introduce our listeners to the cane in the town of Koala in North Queensland, it's a tinderbox. 16-year-old Janet McClymont went missing weeks ago, and despite a thorough search and investigation, the worst is feared. Tensions run high as the townspeople watch each other with suspicion. Janet could have been taken by an outsider, but what if the culprit is among them? Now, there is so much to talk about, but I, I want to begin with, I had this strange sense of dislocation as I read The Cane. Yes, it's set in Australia. Yes, it's in our recent past. But in time and place, it also felt far away. Now, I've not visited North Queensland, but I was compelled by your visions of mile after mile of cane fields. So maybe that's a place to start. Can you give us a sense of the land and more particularly the cane, which has such a central role in the story? Yeah, sure. Um, I just will add that I, I grew up, I did grow up in Queensland, but I grew up in the southeast corner. So... Um, I come to that landscape as a bit of an outsider as well, but it has this, um, like the, the cane fields just have this um, ubiquitous feel, like they just coat the landscape. And it's kind of beautiful, but it's a very, um, you know, it's a very man-made landscape. So you've got all this kind of, um, you know, this vegetation, but it's all, you know, being planted or crops and it's it just kind of coats the landscape. And when the times I've spent up there, you know, I've just been just aware of that. And it's also, 
you know, it's North Queensland, so it's very humid. Um, it's warm. Uh, the, you know, it's a bright, that bright Queensland light. Um, and in the hinterland and further north, of course, it's more, you know, there's the tropics and the rainforest and that sort of thing. But kind of the lowlands and the area around the coast has all been, you know, a lot of it's just been cleared for cane. Mm. I got that real sense that you don't really get a choice in your opinion about the cane. The economy runs on it. You know, you, you, if you hate the cane, keep it private because that is what <laughs> is keeping the town going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's just... You know, it's been part of um, that area of Australia's economy, you know, for for a long time, um, since, you know, the late 19th century. And so, um, you know, it just, it's kind of, it's very much in the landscape and in the people and, um, yeah, it's it's kind of intrinsic. Mm. And historically, we're in the 70s, but you do nod to the, the greater history of this land, um, the relatively recent, I guess, in ge- geological and even um, in Australian sort of sociological terms, the recent clearing of wetlands, the clearing of habitats, the clearing and the killing of local Indigenous people to make way for these farmlands. Um, you describe it really early on in the book, it's a kind of a double-edged sword or there's a love-hate relationship the economic boom of cane growing has um, in many ways left the land denuded of the the natural wildlife that would be there and also with a, a hideous legacy of violence. How mm. did you see, you introduced this really early in the book as, as an idea that kind of backgrounds things. How did you see this greater history playing into the action of the cane? Yeah, well, I guess, and I suppose I want to stress that I don't see that history of kind of dispossession and um, destruction of the um, habitat and natural environment as being solely, you know, located in North Queensland. Like Australia's, Australia has been built on that, um, that kind of history. So, but I had this idea, you know, it's kind of a Gothic idea of this menace in the landscape and, in this case, as I mentioned before, it's like it's a, it's a man, it's a man-made landscape. But I also wanted to, you know, often when terrible things happen in a place, especially like small communities, there's this narrative of, you know, we've we've lost our innocence. You know, we saw it happen, you know, at Port Arthur when that terrible massacre happened there a number of years ago. People said, you know, you know Tasmania's lost its innocence, and I'm like, well. Was Tasmania innocent? You know, when you think of the dispossession and the um, the massacre of Aboriginal people in Tasmania, then the brutalisation of convicts brought to that land, brought to Tasmania. You know, is Tasmania innocent? Is anywhere innocent? And partic- and in North Queensland, they have that particular history where. South Sea Islanders were brought, you know, and there's a bit of a debate about whether they came willingly or whether they were kidnapped or whether they were told lies about what they could expect when they came here. And then, of course, you know, dispossession and um, killing of Aboriginal people and then the clearing of the land. So, 
And I just had this idea about, so what does that do to a landscape, that kind of um, repeated desecration of, of various types? And I suppose it's, it's kind of a little bit fanciful, but I just kind of had this idea of, you know, this menace lurking in the cane that has been generated by, you know, past misdeeds, if you like, and um, past atrocities, I guess. Mm. And it's playing out in present day to the narrative koala in the disappearance of Janet. And Janet is the most present of absent characters. Um, Your story unfolds through a variety of narrators and we meet Janet through their remembrances. Most Most of these narrators are women and through them we see the environment of fear with Janet always on their mind. I wanted to highlight a few of these characters, but I, maybe if we could get started with Janet, given that she, mm-hmm. she really, she only appears in, in recollections um, through, the, through the novel. I wondered how did you conceive of her? How did you want her to portray her through other people's eyes? And what is that like writing a character that you only know through other characters? Yeah, look, I suppose I wanted Janet to, yeah, I wanted her to be present you know, in in some way, Um, you know, some crime fiction, certainly not all of it, but some crime fiction, you know, the victim is kind of almost, um, you know, their importance in the actual story is just at the point that it starts and then it's Mm. kind of like we have the investigation. And I wanted Janet and her relationships, like with her family, with her friends, with her boyfriend, you know, that her loss, to be felt within the novel and not just kind of momentarily, but that it is, you know, a grief and a dread that of what has happened to her that permeates that novel. So um, I wanted her to, um, you know, I really wanted her to have a, have a presence, even if it was, you know, through other people's recollections. Um, and, you know, I kind of, um, I suppose I, I grew to like Janet through other people's recollections of her and I wanted her to um, have this kind of, um, you know, that she was a young woman who was about to kind of inherit what was rightfully hers but that it was stolen from her. It is so interesting as we see through portrayals of Janet in, in people's recollections, in conversations they overhear, a real kind of grappling with with who she was. And it felt like a lot of that reflected not so much the actual person that Janet is, if that's a a sensible thing to say um, in the context of the narrative, but how people wanted to understand what happened to her and how people also wanted to understand the society that they live in. So variously, Janet is um, an innocent member of the community that a terrible thing has happened to, but also that perhaps she is capable of deception, that she is is capable of actually being horrible herself and is, is leading everyone on when really she's perhaps somewhere else and not thinking about them all. What about that that sort of social grappling and the way that I guess the image of a woman can be manipulated by often men to mm. to suit a certain narrative that, that that it suits them to believe rather than what is actually happening? Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways it's also a bit of a 
you know, people are trying to protect themselves or their idea of themselves. And, of course, there's also that there's a little um, nod to that, you know, sometimes, well, you know, it's still pervasive today, that idea, oh, well, if, if a woman is, um, you know, if violence is visited upon her in whatever way, well, then what did she do to deserve that or, you know, what did she do to make that person do that to her? So there's a bit of that, like, you know, victim blaming. But I think there's also, you know, people do, you know, if you have to accept that something like this can happen within a society, in your community, that some, like a young person, a young girl has been stolen, perhaps, you know, kidnapped, perhaps killed, then what does it say about our community that we have allowed that to happen or that we, there is someone who is capable of such a crime and we haven't been able to recognise them or just that we haven't been able to protect one of our own. So, and, and I think also it's just, you know, young women generally, well, and particularly at, at that time, you know, independent, young women becoming more independent, becoming more aware of their power and also kind of, well, you know, why can't I expect all the things that my you know, male counterparts can expect from my life in terms of my freedom, my work, all that sort of thing. So it's always a little bit, um, you know, um, th- you know. I suppose it's a bit disturbing for people, a bit mm. threatening for people. So, yeah. Let's let's go to that because two outsiders very prominently come into Koala during the story. Raylene is the daughter of the new publican. She's nearly fourteen and she's anxious to throw off her juvenile status. She wants to She wants to be seen differently. Carmel Maitland is seconded to Koala to investigate Janet's disappearance. And I'm p- picking out those two in particular, but also along with the new teacher, Eamon Sullivan, um, they highlight this paradox of kind of small town hospitality, but then also a wariness of strangers. Yeah. So you have this really real sense of community, like the place you look at, you know, I want to live there, but then... How do strangers, I guess, sort of penetrate that external bubble? Yeah. And I wanted, to, I wanted to see what you were doing there. Like how do communities in crisis and how do these sorts of communities highlight existing divisions in social order? Yeah. Look, I think rural communities, um, you know, they're, they're still, even though they might be small in terms of the number of people, you know, there are hierarchies and there are, uh, little clicks within them. You know, there are people who hold knowledge and people who, you know, hold secrets. And um, and with Raylene, I suppose, you know, she's quite a disruptive force. So she is, um, as you said, she's the publican's daughter. She's at going to primary school. She doesn't, she comes on the scene after Janet has disappeared but she's a very worldly girl, and even though she's still in primary school, she's actually a few years older because just of the life that she's had with her father moving around the place. So she's got this, she's disturbing to the adults in her life or the adults around her because she has this knowledge of the world that is deemed um, too precocious for a girl her age. And also she's, and she probably... You know, I, I love Raylene and I kind of recognise her from girls when I was 
a child who kind of just seemed to, you know, they had a knowledge of the world way beyond their years and um, and that's kind of disturbing for the people who, for the adults, but it's also very attractive when you're a bit younger and you're looking at that, at a person like that and you want, like for, so for Essie, who's um, also at the school and who Janet used to babysit, Essie kind of clings onto Raylene because she wants to, you know, kind of learn the things that Raylene knows. And, but she's also a little bit wary in that she knows, you know, when she, when, because Essie's kind of just said that, um, you know, she's on the cusp between childhood and adolescence and her, you know, not unsurprisingly in the wake of Janet's disappearance, her parents are very protective of her and she's kind of impatient with that. You know, she wants a bit of freedom and she can kind of see Raylene as her ticket out because Raylene's, you know, Raylene knows stuff. She knows stuff about the world. She knows stuff about men and women, she knows stuff about sex, you know, so Essie kind of um, clings on to her. And and also people, like it, it, within the story, Raylene, like I said, she, I said, the adults who observe her are a bit disturbed by her too because they can see that she has this, you know, worldliness beyond her years and not... Um, not unreasonably, some of those adults fear for Raylene that she will get herself into 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 situations where she may not want to be, or where she could be exploited or hurt or whatever. So um, she's a bit of a disruptor. Yeah. Um, Carmel do Maitland, you, who's the. Do you mind uh, super quick? I'm sorry to interrupt no, you, Meros, but go ahead. just as you were talking there, you, you brought to mind this really interesting juxtaposition that you create where you talk about disruption, Raylene's potential for disruption. And we have, as I say, this really interesting juxtaposition between Raylene and the character of Janet's mother, Barbara. And Barbara is. Is in people's reminiscence because, of course, when we meet her, she is distraught. She's wandering the cane. She is a shell of a person, as you like, as you would expect when you've lost someone so close. But memories of Barbara um, also sort of see her as a disruptor. She's come in. She's she's artistic. She's not necessarily so domestic, but. She is an acceptable version of disruption where Raylene is not. I mean, can we simply put that down to their age or do you think there is something else going on here about what's permissible? If you're going to disrupt the social order, there's a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, look, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure about whether Barbara would be viewed benignly as a disruptor. Like I think she's, you know, she and her family have only been in the district a short, relatively short period of time and already, you know, she's... Um, supplying Connie, who is Essie's mother, you know, with books about feminism and, you know, kind of reframing um, women's experience and that sort of thing. And that's, you know, it's not, um, there's no hostility towards her, but there is a little bit of a, you know, what's what's going on here and what are these newfangled ideas and that sort of thing. Um, but I suppose just Barbara being the sort of person she is, so, you know, she's educated, she is older. So I think she's probably just more sure of herself and, um, you know, and just people are less likely to, um, 
you know, she she's not perceived as being a danger to herself or to anybody else. While Raylene, I think um, there is that sense that she will invite mm. danger or um, take others into danger with her. So, so Barbara's got that social power that she can kind of push back yeah. a little bit where Raylene doesn't. And I'm sorry, I, we, you were just starting to talk about Carmel Maitland, who is also another incredible character who's who sort of tends to i guess um skirt around the fringes of the story as i guess you would expect an investigator to do mm. yeah so carmel has also just come in kind of quite late in the piece kind of almost as an afterthought or you know maybe we should have a you know a female officer to talk to the women in the district maybe that might be a good idea so and carmel um you know she's she's come up from down south so immediately she's a little bit She's viewed as a bit um, as an outsider. She's um, she's got a, taking on a traditional male role as a as a police officer. Um, she's quite a strong, you know. She's a little bit spiky character. So I think, and she's just viewed a bit with suspicion. But I wanted, you know, and but she and she also brings that kind of outsider's perspective on the community, which I kind of wanted in in the book. So, um, and I think Carmel's just, like Carmel and Barbara, they're kind of a, um, you know, they're harbingers of the change that yeah. the 70s are bringing, you know, that because, um, of course, you know, it was a time of great social and cultural change in Australia and elsewhere in the 1970s, and Carmel and Barbara are kind of the, you know the avatars of 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 that change of um, women being increasingly present in public life, uh, of you know taking up positions in work and politics and arts and that sort of thing. So yeah, I think yeah. that's the role they play. I mean, yeah, like now you you say that I'm like, yes, Raylene would be she'd be on TikTok. She would have a sort of an influencer <laughs> vibe about her. Like Carmel would have would have smashed away up the ranks well past uh what is it detective superintendent uh sullivan is that is that his name patterson uh, patterson. 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 patterson and we yeah. can also absolutely we're just going to tick off the next question because you've really beautifully answered it i was very curious about this idea of them as visions of the world to come because i, I began with talking about this sense of dislocation and characters like raylene and carmel helped ground me because they were they were recognizable to me as people that I would expect to meet. Now, that's not to say that other characters as types don't still exist, but maybe... Well, look, from the... Whoa, I'm getting too excited. I just almost knocked my <laughs> microphone over. Keep that in the podcast, but we might have to edit that bit. I was just about to say, from the, from the distance of 50-odd years, it may be tempting to think of this as a story about the past. Mm-hmm. But the behaviours, particularly I'm going to call on the behaviours of Kuala men, they may be more flagrant than we see day to day. They may, and we may be able to say that progress has been made. And I'm going to pick on something that I haven't, we haven't explained in the conversation yet, but I was going to say, look, look at me. Just look at my hair. Nobody calls me a communist to my face. Um <laughs> I saw. They're thinking it, Andrew. They're thinking it. <laughs> that, well, they are. <laughs> 
I, I saw in the cane this reflection of social evils that we're still grappling with and maybe no more so than, than today. I wondered, particularly thinking back on the last year or so um, of Australian sort of social life, has it, has it given you cause to reflect on the story and um, this idea of reckoning? There's a lot of talk around reckoning, um, particularly for men who use their power against women and use their power to abuse women. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I've been thinking about, um, you know, with Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, those stories coming out, and it is it is a bit, a bit disheartening to think there are still, you know, people who would, you know, say, well, you know, Brittany Higgins was obviously drunk, what was she doing in there in the first place or whatever, or that you know, Grace that Grace Tame is is suspect is expected to smile and make nice because you know she's with the prime minister or whatever. Um, but I do so so in some way because I've had people say to me, "Oh, was it really that sexist in the in the seventies? I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. Particularly, and but I look around now at some of the things that um, young women have to put up with. I think, oh, you know, has have things changed that that much? But I also, but I guess I've also wanted to say with you know, I think there are some good you know there are some good men in the cane as well. Like I think, I think Joe, who is Janet's was Janet's boyfriend, you know, he is going to be a good man when he, when he is older, you know, he's, he's a good person now, you know, even like, um, you know, and the headmaster of the school where they went earn, you know, I think he basically is a good man. Um, So I don't want, I don't want people to think that, you know, the book is about, you know, all men are bastards and Mm. all women are great. Like, I think, I think there are some, you know, some good men in the story. Um, but it was like the seventies in Queensland. So Joe Bajoki Peterson was prime minister. I was premier, and Joe he kind wanted of really to be inc- prime minister, but we won't give it to him. Yeah, we won't. Yeah, <laughs> and he did really encourage this idea that Queenslanders were a bit of a race apart, you know, and that they were kind of mavericks. You know, we were mavericks and all that sort of stuff. So there was this, and particularly. You know, not so much now, but, you know, North Queensland was a long way away from anywhere. Like even, you know, from Brisbane, you know, North Queensland was a long way away. So, and then there used to be this, um, you know, there was a stretch of highway between Rockhampton and Serena. And if you were driving north to Mackay or further, you would go along that stretch of road. And people would say, you know, don't stop on the horror stretch. You know, it was this very poorly maintained bit of road it was you know single lane there were you know barely anyone living either side and so it was kind of like this badlands you had to cross to get mm. you know north so it did have this kind of um feeling of 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 a world apart so i don't know maybe that accounts for your feeling of kind of dis- dislocation from the from some of the characters or just that or, or that particular time but to me it does it kind of it does feel authentic from mm. that um from my memories i mean obviously i was um a child but and, and i think it has probably changed now like i think australia has changed a lot 
socially and culturally, but there was this idea of, yes, you know, North Queensland, North Queensland is particularly being kind of, um, yeah, a little bit wilder, a little bit more independent. Um, yeah. I liked the way it played out and something that, that felt very familiar. And, in fact, I had just had this, this is, I'm just riffing because I had this incredible conversation with my wife this morning about the cane, but the way it sort of fits in the broader way we tell stories and this idea that the sort of crime, so it's it's not spoiling anything to say that Janet is missing and and presumed um, presumed to be dead, but the sort of way we tell those stories is a bad person, a bad man has done this action. And it plays out through the cane with the the town constantly asking, was it an outsider? Yeah, it was probably an outsider, and, and therefore a, a bad person, a person, but or like, but it could be one of us. And at mm. various times, you have characters asking each other, "Could it have been? Could it have been one of us?" And various people think different things. And then the way that plays, I'm flying dangerously close to the sun here, but the way that plays out when the truth is revealed, and how we come to think of the truth when it's discovered. And are we able to do we do we kind of completely rewrite the past to say, well, of course it was a bad person all along, just because we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really interesting. I don't think you you don't labour this in any way, but in in my thinking about the book, it it makes me wonder what happens in the the days, the months, the pages after the end of the cane. How do they tell themselves the story that makes yeah. sense of what's happened in their community? Um, yeah. which is which is really interesting and really fundamental, I guess, to how they go about living their lives when something so so critical has happened in their town. Yeah. Look, it's a good question, and thankfully, I don't really have to answer it. Because <laughs> you don't. You absolutely don't. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I think for um, questions, I mean, for any, um, oh, any community where that happens that is a crucial question how do we rebuild or how do we think of ourselves now how do we heal this breach and you know i guess yeah i don't i don't don't know how people do it i don't know how families do it i don't know how when something like that happens it's I guess it's just something you have to try and do. I don't know, mm. gradually, day by day, minute by you know, hour by hour. I mean, it's okay. You literally don't have to answer this unless you choose to write a sequel. <laughs> in which case, there's a problem for your to pop on your shoulders. A, a related question that I think I absolutely can get you to answer because it it, yeah. it is around the way you, as a writer, have crafted the cane. Um, it's really interesting to me that from the beginning, the whole area of Koala is occupied with Janet's disappearance. And you've, you've referenced earlier in the conversation the way this could be a device that sort of sets the chain in, in motion. But Janet is a very present character. It also, starting off that way, gives the story kind of a, a whodunit aura. But it's not one in the sense of we're going to follow a trail of clues, you know, cigarette butts mm. and barking dogs. <laughs> rather, rather, I, th- I kind of saw you giving me, uh, at least, a little bit of a psychological whodunit. You're mm. showing us enough of the characters in the town to make us wonder which 
of the characters could possibly be guilty. And it's a question the townspeople are asking themselves. But was that on your mind? I mean, I, I can read that, but that doesn't mean it was on your mind. Did you want the reader actively engaging in the guesswork here, trying to solve Look, not particularly. That's, see, that's really interesting to me. I, th- I just feel like the human mind just goes, there's a, there's a puzzle here, I want to solve it. Yeah, I suppose because um, I was kind of more interested in how something like the disappearance of a young girl, how does that, how does that affect a community? What, how does it ripple out? And I guess that's one way... Why, one reason why the story is told in kind of through several perspectives and mm. in several voices because I wanted those different, um, you know, those, yeah, the different perspectives on, on how it was affecting the community. And in terms of kind of, I suppose, you know, the, the more like the plot, mm. like, okay, so this has happened, what has happened, and who has done this thing that has happened. It was more actually in the when I was revising the novel after I'd submitted it to the publisher and it had been accepted and then it was the editor was like, I think you really need to lean more into this idea of the book being within the crime genre because I wasn't really, I mean, it kind of sounds, it might sound disingenuous, but I wasn't, when I was writing it, Initially, I wasn't thinking of it as being within the crime genre. No. I was thinking of it perhaps more in that um, a bit like a, you know, Australian Gothic or with those tropes mm. of, um, you know, missing children, that sort of thing. Um, you know, everything from, you know, picnic at Hanging Rock or whatever. And it wasn't kind of until I was revising the novel and thinking, okay, so I do have to, you know, maybe I, I need to follow these conventions more that I began to kind of um, develop that plot and that through line more um, more definitively. And I think the book benefits from that mm. um, because, yeah, because it just gives it a forward motion. But I, I didn't, yeah, I wasn't kind of thinking, oh, I'll put these little clues here or these little clues there. I it was kind of just more organic, I suppose. Were there, I mean, toward, yeah, toward, towards the end, I suppose, oh, I might, you know, I'll play that bit up or whatever. I'll put that, you know, to make it a little bit more, um, you know, that kind of, so that that pro, that pro um, that process of getting towards a resolution becomes more satisfactory, more satisfying, I suppose, for the reader. Were there things that had to be lost in order to include? Were there... <laughs> Yeah, look, there were things that were lost that, you know, briefly I was like, oh, no, I want that bit. Can I keep that sentence on? No, get rid of it. Um, but that pain didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> there was more, it was quite, there was, it was a bit more, um, in the initial drafts, it was a bit more fanciful and a little bit more florid perhaps. And I think my editor was quite uh, right in kind of, you know, gently but firmly saying, well, maybe we can just tone that down a little bit and maybe you don't need so much of that. So, um, yeah, but I mean, I think you always do have to sacrifice some of your babies, but, you know. Kill, kill your darlings. Kill your darlings. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it, is, it is so interesting because it, 
it occasionally comes up in the conversations I get to have on final draft, this sort of strange feeling that I have as a reader. I think a lot of readers do have this and a very visceral way of reading. And while I asked you a kind of a, a whodunity quite question there, I, I very quickly also realized it wasn't a whodunit. And that, that really came to me as I'm, I'm great for radio. I'm holding up the book. <laughs> and as you sort of, as you read, your fingers are reading with you and not, not in a, any sort of braille sense, but as you get to a certain point in the book and you realise some things haven't happened that you might expect to happen, you go, well, if this is a whodunit, you're yeah. really cutting it fine. And then I'm like, oh, this is, you know, I'm not expected to figure this out. You're going to tell me if and when you're ready. And it, yeah. what is really great about that is that it completely upsets that innate sort of three-act structure, I know what's going to happen and it really rockets you towards the finish where there were, there were genuinely moments and huge spoiler alert here where I didn't know if you were going to give us a resolution. So I guess I've kind of implied there is a resolution, but I thought yeah. there was a world where you wouldn't give us a certain resolution. And I was really okay with that because I thought that actually made, made sense in some ways. But I also really, uh, yeah, you, you tied things up really neatly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there was... Uh, yes, probably quite early on I was thinking, you know, maybe it doesn't, maybe there is not a resolution, you know, there isn't a resolution for the reader. But, um, and I did kind of play with a couple of endings where things were not so um, neat. I suppose, and I suppose I've tried to leave a couple of, you know, not quite, uh, things not quite sewn up, but um Yes, but people, any potential readers can be assured there is a resolution, yeah. That's going, this This is all going to have to go in, in the podcast with a big potential spoiler <laughs> alert. Boop, 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 because, I mean, this well, is... I don't, I, don't think, I don't think we've given too much away, really. You would be surprised, like, from from about the halfway point, I was wondering about the the if or if, or if not of a resolution, and it... What it brought to my reading was, I guess, something that you can't consciously do, but it was it was that sort of feeling at the back of my neck, that that thing that, you know, when something when we call something a page turner, it's either a you know a, a vacuous compliment or it's a feeling that I, I don't think anyone can create, but where you're just, okay, five more pages before I fall asleep, I'm gonna regret this tomorrow. And and just the the fact that you left it ambiguous or the fact that I felt that it was ambiguous really drove me forward. If I'd known for sure what was going to happen, I think that would have changed my reading. This is why I, it doesn't come up as often because I'm really talking about some very sort of um, extra sensory reading perceptions here and I don't want to come across as a complete kook all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think it is... Because there are those, I mean, and in fact, you know, the stories that um, are kind of not not necessarily at the heart of the novel but kind of or a starting point for me for this novel are stories of children disappearing who, whose, disappearance have, whose disappearances haven't been solved, you know, 50, 60 years later, you know, parents not knowing what happened to their children. And, you know, I, there would be few uh, hells worse than that one, I would mm. think. 
You just, and again, I, I will let you go. I think we said 45 minutes and we're getting very close. But it, again, just thinking about genre and thinking about what you were talking about before, how um, this this book seems to have kind of floated in between genres as you were writing and as you were being encouraged through edits. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that it might be an, an unresolved crime story would change this completely because, of course, if it's an unresolved crime, you have to move it 50 years into the future and your protagonist is a podcaster who is going out to solve the crime. I mean, the only way you can approach an unsolved crime nowadays is to be a podcaster, apparently. Oh, is that right? I think. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, perhaps. Mary Rose, before this conversation uh, jumps the the proverbial shark or at least – jumps it again um i want to say thank you and i'm just going to pop a little bit of a a little bit of a proper ending on our conversation Mm -hmm. okay it is an absolutely thrilling book the cane and it's been such a pleasure to speak with its author mary rose cuskelly is the author of the cane she's been joining me today it's been a real ride thank you so much you've indulged some really uh interesting questions on my behalf and i appreciate it thank you so much Absolute pleasure, Andrew, and I really appreciate how closely you've read the novel and how you've engaged with it. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Mary Rose Cuskelly. Mary Rose's new book is The Cane. It's out now. Great Conversations is recorded from the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Final Draft 2 ser It is a great time to become a subscriber. Final Draft is celebrating its 30th birthday. 30 years on Sydney Radio on 2SER, even though the podcast is still just a wee little baby. And there's going to be birthday stuff all year, including more interviews, more discussions than ever. So subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It means more new great conversations every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy uh, happy reading.